Uh, our speaker for this hour is Jacob Rutledge. Jacob is the preacher for the Dripping Springs congregation down in Dripping Springs, Texas. Uh, he is, uh, has multiple uh, degrees, but being a teenager, you're probably like, I don't even know what, the, you know, whatever. Um, what you should care about, though, is that Jacob is a guy that uh, loves God's Word. I've been very impressed with uh, the work that I've seen him do. He always comes out with an interesting and fresh, and I think most importantly, an applicable perspective to where you can, if you're willing to listen to what he'll say, you'll come out a little closer to God than when you began. And uh, I think especially for uh, being teenagers and, and younger people, uh, he has a way of being able to connect with you that I think you will appreciate and value. So without taking up too much more of his time, rather come bring the word to us. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, it's my first time speaking on the lectures. I've been to the lectures before and appreciate all the good work that the church does here. And uh, one of the things that I respect about the congregation here is all the great work that they do with their young people. And, and um, Brad's done a great job through the years of, of uh, doing that. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. Although I will say it's, I think since it is my first time uh, speaking, they wanted to give me a challenge, speaking to young people after lunch. So uh, we'll see if we can uh, get through this um, together. Uh, some of you have probably seen the reports over the past year, year and a half, of these supposed alien sightings. Have you seen these maybe on the news where there's these ships that can't be identified and, and people are looking at these objects that are kind of flying through the sky and wondering what they are, not being able to identify them, and others having phone calls that sound kind of suspicious. And maybe I'm the only one that's been paying attention to that. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but there's over the past year and a half or so, there's been these strange sightings. It's always interesting to me to see how people react in these videos because on one hand, they're recording them and they're, they're, they're very interested in it. They can't take their eyes off of it, right? But then on the other hand, they're terrified because they can't, they can't identify what it is. They don't know what it is. So there's this complex reaction where they want to see it. They, they want to behold it because it's something mysterious. It's something unknown. But at the same time, it also somewhat terrifies them. Now, for me personally, the mysterious, the unknown has always been really interesting. I remember as a kid getting books about aliens and Bigfoot and all of these different things that had to do with myths and lore. And I don't know if you've heard of the podcast called Lore or not. Has anybody ever heard of the Lore podcast? Uh, I love the Lore podcast because it has a lot to do with the, the strange and the mysterious. I've always been excited and, and like looking into those things. And I'm bringing this up because... Whenever we start talking about the subject of holiness, and especially when it comes to God's holiness, the mystery of His holiness, we're kind of encountering something like that reaction to the strange. Where we see something that we want. Something that is unknown. Something that is so other. Something that draws us in. But at the same time, it's something that can be quite terrifying. Because whenever we look in Scripture, and the Bible talks about God's holiness, it talks about it in terms of both mysterious and terrifying. Almost alien to us. 
But yet it's something that we desire. Think, for example, of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, Isaiah's longing to recognize God's reign. The king's dead. And, and so God reveals Himself to Isaiah in this magnificent vision where the train of His robe is filling the temple and the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy, holy. This is what Isaiah wanted, right? He wanted to know that God was reigning. He wanted to know that, that God was, was in control even though the king was dead. So God shows it to him. And you would think that Isaiah would be jumping up and down saying, This is awesome. This is great. This is wonderful. Do you remember what he does? He says... Woe is me, for I am undone. The, the word there can literally be translated, I'm being pulled apart. Isaiah gets the vision that he longed for, that he thought that he wanted, and as soon as he encounters the effulgence of God's holiness, he is absolutely terrified, and he says, the, my very existence is being rent asunder. See, this is God's holiness. In Leviticus, Exodus, whenever God is talking to the people about how to, uh, His presence can dwell among them. And all of these different things that have to happen. All these different sacrifices that have to occur. All these different cleansings that have to happen. In Exodus especially, it's all this buildup, right? All of these sacrifices and all of these things just to get God's, what we call His Shekinah glory, to dwell in the tabernacle in the midst of the people. So they do all of these things and, and God's presence finally comes down to the tabernacle. And do you know how Exodus ends? Moses was unable to enter. They, they wanted all of Exodus. They want God's holiness amongst them. They want Him there. But as soon as He shows up, they can't enter. So we notice again this tension of the desire of God's holiness and yet the fear of His holiness. Because where does that fear come from? It comes from our sinfulness. It comes from the fact that God is completely holy. And we are only partially holy as much as we draw near to Him. But we want that holiness. We long for it. We long for the mystery. We need something that surpasses the mundane and the natural. So we hunger for it. And we can't take our eyes off it. And we want to video it if we could. But at the same time, it scares us to death. And this is why it's so difficult sometimes to talk about holiness. If I came up to you and asked you to describe certain attributes of God, you could probably give me a generally good definition. If you said, well, what does it mean when God says that He's long-suffering? What does it mean when you know, it says God is love? You could probably give me a general definition, but when I come up to you and say, what does it mean that God is holy? That's probably going to take you a little bit longer. Because it's so complex. On one hand, it's talking about His purity, but it's not just purity. On one hand, it's talking about His faithfulness, but it's not just about His faithfulness. If I had a way to describe God's holiness... I would have to say that God's holiness is His transcendent otherness. He is completely above and beyond us in everything. Undefinable, incomprehensible. In His goodness, in His love, everything that God does is holy. His love is holy love. His wrath is holy wrath. His justice is holy justice. And all of that. See, because holiness isn't just about a single attribute. It's a part of who He is. It is who He is. It's a, it's a term to describe His nature. 
And that's why it's so alien to us because our, our struggle with sin and our falling into sin goes against that. But oh, how we hunger for it. And oh, how we long for it. And so, when God comes to His people, when He encounters them, despite our unholiness and despite our sin, when He comes to us, what does He expect of us as image bearers of His? Be ye holy, for I am holy. He tells Abraham when he calls him in Genesis 17 and verse 1, he tells Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be what? Blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Now that's a high calling. Especially because we know that we need God's holiness. We long for it, yet we know that we struggle to be other. We struggle to be distinct in who we are. The natural person wants us to cling to what seems right to us, to what is pleasurable, to what is comfortable, to to what makes sense to our mind. And then when we encounter God's holiness, it calls us to a complete otherness. And initially, that might seem wrong because it seems so unnatural to live this way, to live holy. Because it goes against what I want. But then when you start living that way, when you start pursuing that, you find a hunger. A hunger to encounter something other than just you. God's holiness calls us to behold Him, to live holy in an unholy world. And that's what we're talking about in the time that that we have for us this afternoon. And I want us to just break down exactly what holiness looks like when we're living in an unholy world. We want to talk about the path of holiness. We want to talk about the discipline that's required for holiness. And then if we have time at the end, we'll talk about the nature or the image of holiness within us. Let's first start talking about the path to holiness. The path to holiness. It's interesting to me... That the Bible, when it's talking about the life of faith, it describes it as a walk, yeah. not a run. <laughs> a walk, and I'm thankful that it's a walk, because sometimes I feel like I'm crawling. <laughs> it's a walk of faith. Walk before me, God says to Abraham. We see in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so whenever we start talking about our, even how we describe the entirety of the Christian life, we say it's a pilgrimage, journey. It's a journey into the heart of God. Do you know that's where we're going? To the presence of God? You know what's really interesting is that throughout all of Scripture, God reveals a lot of things, a lot of things to His people. I mean, He tells us how the world began. He tells us all of these different things. He gives us all that we need to know for life and for godliness, Peter says, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He gives us all of these things. But you know the one thing that He keeps hidden from us? From Genesis to Revelation and even up until this day, you know the one thing that's hidden from us? His face. His face. Do you remember whenever Moses Moses comes to God and He says, Lord, show me Your glory. Do you remember what God said? I'll show you the back of me. I can't show you my face. It would destroy you. But what's interesting is there's a promise given in Revelation 22 and verse 4. 
for the people who make the pilgrimage, the people who make the journey, it says, and they will see His face. The face of God. Classical writers called it the beatific vision. The vision of beauty. This is the promise given to those who make the journey of faith. They will see the face of God in all of His holiness. The one thing that we long for and hunger for, but we won't be afraid anymore. Because we will be made perfect by the power of Christ, by the mercy of God, by the blood of the Lamb. The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 12 and verse 14, this is a really important passage. He says, Strive for peace with every man and for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. You can't see the Lord without holiness. You can't see the Lord without being other. And that, that should make us tremble. <clears throat> that, that, that should make us stop and pause for a second. That should make me reflect on my life and think, am I really seriously taking holiness as serious as God takes it? Because the Hebrews writer is saying, unless you're holy, you're not seeing God. Now, he's not making some works-based salvation by which we're earning a way into the presence of God by our own merit. There's this understanding throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews that it is only by the grace and the power and the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus that we can get there. But the Hebrews writer doesn't want you to misunderstand. Just because because Jesus has done His part doesn't mean you don't have to do yours. There's a holiness which you must strive for. That you must give effort to. And this is the path of holiness. Do you remember? I got. I, I kind of feel like uh, what's his name, brother? Was it brother Brock? Byron, who was down to immigration, he said he had to throw a couple of psalms in there to justify his lesson. So I've got to throw at least one psalm in there. Psalm 15 and, and verse 1. Notice what, uh, how the uh, psalmist describes this. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Some of your translations might say, who may ascend? Who is it? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt. He does not change. He does not put out his money at interest. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be shaken. Now, notice that he talks about holiness in relationship, not to one specific attribute, but to the entire character of the person. Holiness impacts everything that they are. It impacts how they use their money. It impacts how they treat other people. It impacts a host of different things. But I want you to notice how it describes the journey of holiness in verse 1. Who shall... Ascent. Who shall come up to your holy hill, O God? See, holiness is a climb. Holiness is an ascent into the presence of God. And there's steps of holiness. We build 
on our holiness. We grow in our holiness as we become more and more like God. Holiness, and we'll talk about this a little bit later if we have time, but it's not just about withholding certain things. I'm afraid that's how we think of holiness, is this, as if it means uh, depriving ourselves. That's kind of how we conceive of holiness. Now, you do have to deprive yourself of certain things if you want to be holy. That's obvious, and we should, we should understand that. We shouldn't expect to come into the presence of God without sacrifice. I don't know where we got that from. We're going to have to sacrifice. But holiness is more than that. Holiness is about the goodness of God impacting every area of our life. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that uh, once, once we have time. But the path of holiness is not a life of sterility that is bereft of enjoyment and pleasure. But it is the journey to the fountain of delight Himself. Now let's talk about the disciplines of holiness. The disciplines of holiness. Now again, whenever we think about discipline, it's not necessarily something enjoyable. You know, My kids, I have three kids. I have yet for one of them to come up to me and say, Dad, I think I need a good spanking today. <laughs> They're not really seeking it out. They're not longing for it. But hopefully, if I do it right, one day they'll look back and say, Dad, I'm glad that you did that. Glad I, 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 Dad, I'm glad you did because I benefited from it. I was blessed by it. Discipline is difficult, but the disciplined life is the only way to true and lasting joy. A life of unrestrained pleasure, a life with no boundaries, a life lacking in conviction and principle is not a life worth living. And it's not a life that you'll want to live. A life of hedonism rather than holiness is something that the serpent offered to Eve and she quickly regretted it, as did Adam. The reason I bring this up is because if we want to live holy in an unholy life, there is, in an unholy world rather, there are certain practices that we're going to have to, to do. There are certain things we're going to have to follow. In fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7, Notice what the Hebrews writer says. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Now notice what it says in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His... Anybody want to guess the final word there? Holiness. And then notice verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So notice what He's saying here. If you want to share in God's holiness, if you're looking at this great mystery, you're saying there's something there I can't take my eyes off of, that I'm being drawn into, that my heart hungers for, and yet it trembles at, I want that, the Hebrews writer says, then you better be ready to get disciplined. You better be ready to endure some trials. Because our sinfulness, and our weakness, and our rebellion... Need some discipline. And let me tell you, if you've ever endured discipline from the hand of the Lord, it's not enjoyable. But it is good. It is good. 
He wants to discipline us for our good to share in His holiness. Now, that might come through life circumstances and it might come through friends, the rebuke of a good friend. It might come through a variety of different things. But there are three avenues by which God has called us, three tools by which we can pursue holiness in our life. The first one is, and this should be obvious, but the first one is prayer. Do you remember when Jesus taught what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6? Do you remember how it begins? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Before we request anything, before we ask anything, before we petition God for anything, before we talk to God about the heartaches that, that John talked about earlier, which was so good in that lesson about grieving and the Psalms of lament, but before we do any of that, the first thing Jesus says you have to recognize in prayer is that God is holy. And everything else that you're requesting of God has to align with that. Because there's some things that I'm going to ask for that God's going to look and say, no. And do you know why He says no? Number one, because He can. But number two, because it will not make me holy. God's primary objective in your life is for you to be holy. That's it. That is the number one objective, is for you to be holy. And the reality is, is that there are certain things that you're going to petition for that you don't understand why God would say no to this, but He does. You know, there's things that my kids come to me, they ask me things all the time. I have to make rules. And I'm sure other dads can sympathize with this. I have to make rules when we go in the store. We walk in the store, and you know what the first thing I say? Don't ask me for anything. Okay? Don't ask me for anything. You know what they end up doing? Asking me for something. You know? And usually, it's candy, right? And candy, you know, candy, I'm a little bit soft on sometimes. Sometimes it's like, Dad, can we have candy? And then I have to look to Mom. No, you can't have candy. Uh, but, uh, but, there are things that, and you know, and there's times where they don't understand it. Well, why can't I have that? And you know what? I don't have to explain myself to them. I don't. Sometimes I do. But sometimes I have a purpose in my mind that they don't know. That's in the long term. That they couldn't possibly understand right now. That I'm saying no, because this doesn't fit into the plan for your life. And so whenever I am praying to God, holiness is at the center of it. It's a discipline. Listen, whenever Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, pray without ceasing, there's different ways to maybe understand that. It obviously doesn't mean every second of every day I'm praying, but I'll tell you one thing I know it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we spend less time in prayer. <laughs> it means that I'm trying to find opportunities to spend more time in prayer. And at the center of that prayer is God... I have other things I want to talk to you about. I have other things that I need. But before anything, I want to be holy and I want your name to be hallowed in my life. Through my actions, through my thoughts, through my life, let your, the mystery of your holiness, the, the, the greatness of your holiness be magnified in me. Let that be done. So prayer. The second discipline of holiness is worship. Worship. And I mean communal worship. I know we can worship individually, but I'm talking about the community of worship when Christians assemble together to worship. The Hebrews writer 
In Hebrews 10, verse 25, the passage that many of us know, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, it had become the habit of some to forsake the assembling, and Hebrews writer disciplines them for that. But do you remember why he disciplines them for it? Why is in verse 24. You need to come together, he says, to stir up one another to love and to good works. You're coming together to become more like God. Worship is a means of making us holy. And it's not just through the preaching of the Word. It's not simply through the singing of the songs. It's simply by being in fellowship with other sinners, <laughs> with other broken people, with other Christians who are struggling to be holy like God. It helps me to be more holy, to be with people who are struggling for holiness. You know why? Because in, in, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus there makes this incredible statement where he's talking about being good to the unrighteous and to sinners. And he says, because your father does what? He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then do you remember what he says right after that? You shall therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfection. That's holiness language. And he's not talking about it, when it in the context of some sexual sin or something like that. He's talking about treating people decently even though they don't deserve it. So what that means is, is that holiness, again, encompasses more than I can think of. Holiness means that I am more gracious and merciful because I am more holy. I don't become less gracious, less merciful, less patient, more bitter because I'm becoming more holy. If, if, if that's the direction you're going, you're doing holiness wrong. Okay? If you're growing more bitter, more judgmental, more pessimistic, more cynical, as you think you're growing in holiness, then you're doing holiness wrong. Holiness draws me into the mercy of God. And worship helps me to realize how to love other people who are sinning and struggling for God's holiness. And hopefully you're learning that through me too. The third way, that the third discipline, the tool for holiness is service. Service to others. Service requires sacrifice. It's easy for Christians to become consumed in debates over various doctrinal issues and some of those can be important. But whenever Christians are given the opportunity to humble ourselves to serve each other in our community, we are reminded in a fresh way of the heart of our faith, which Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 6, is faith working through love. That's at the heart of what our faith is about. Whenever Jesus comes, the perfection of holiness in our midst, truly God, truly man, He tells His disciples in Mark 10 and verse 25, I came not to be served, but to serve. What that tells me is that if, the, if Jesus, who is holy in every way, if His primary mission as a part of His holiness was to serve other people, then I cannot be holy unless I am serving others as well. Unless I'm sacrificing for other needs. So holiness, see this is really easy to, to, to fall into. Sometimes we can think of holiness just as an intellectual thing. Like, listen, I love to study. If you know me, I, I'm reading most of the time. Okay, I love to read. I love to study. 
But if I'm not careful, holiness can become only an intellectual pursuit rather than an incarnational one. And it's really easy to get in my head and think, oh, I'm a pretty holy person. I haven't served someone in months. You can't be holy as God is holy unless your ears are open to the needs of your neighbor. Unless you're attentive to hurting people. A willingness to sacrifice. A willingness to to go out of your way to help and to aid those who are in need. And so our, our call then through these disciplines, through prayer, through worship, through service, and there's a host of others, but those are three main ones, is to, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice that holiness once again is connected to fear. I wish we had time to talk about the fear of God a little bit more because, man, we have just uh, completely shied away from that. And, and, and the fear of God is a different kind of fear within the Bible. But, brethren, don't undermine it either because it's still a fear that makes you tremble. Okay? Where God's holiness draws us in and it makes us fall flat on our faces. So let's talk about what does the image of holiness look like? What does it look like when you are holy in an unholy world. Well, there's no better place to discover the nature of holiness than within the Beatitudes, within the blessed life that Jesus describes for us in Matthew chapter 5. Now, whenever you think about holiness, maybe you think of some monk sitting away somewhere in some, in some monastery, kind of isolated by himself. But what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 is holiness is something that we can pursue and display in everyday life. And it's displayed in a host of different attributes that we have as we pursue these blessed attributes and the Beatitudes. The first one is, of course, to be the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit. Holiness is first a posture of humility. Holiness is a recognition of, God, you are transcendently and completely other. And I have no right to kick down the door into your presence. Listen, when you realize that you don't have a right to be in the presence of God, that you don't have a right to eternal life, that you can claim and say, I have the right to this, that's humbling. Because then God says, you don't have the right to just kick down the door into my presence, but I'll give it to you. And you can come boldly. But you only come into the presence of God's throne. You only come into the face of God bowed in a posture of humility. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have emptied themselves of pride and of vanity, who have emptied themselves of self-indulgence, who have emptied themselves of a conceited spirit, and come rather to my mercy to be perfected by me. Number two, holiness looks like the sorrowful. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. If you didn't have a chance to listen to John's lesson earlier, John uh, Baker's lesson on the Psalms of Lament, you really need to take the time. Even as young people, you really need to take the time to listen to that lesson because it was just absolutely just wonderful. And one of the reasons you need to listen to it as a young person is because we, you are growing up in a society that does not teach you how to mourn. Okay? 
you're growing up in a society where every video has a thousand different colors and cool techno lights and everything is always rainbows and unicorns and everything's always great and I need to keep myself distracted so that I don't struggle with these feelings that I'm having and, and I don't want to be sad. I don't want to listen to the wrong song because that song might make me sad and I don't want to be sad. We do everything that we can to avoid sorrow. And let me tell you something. That's inhuman. It's subhuman to not sorrow, to not grieve. You cannot be fully alive unless you learn how to grieve. You can't be fully human unless you know how to have your heart broken. To be sorrowful, to mourn in life is an important part of holiness. Because holiness requires difficult situations. Holiness, as we talked about earlier, is going to require discipline. And sometimes the path of holiness is going to lead you to a place that hurts. And if you don't know how to truly mourn in the presence of God, to, to allow yourself to say, God, I have been brought low and I need you and I just need your presence, I need your healing... If you can't get there, it's going to be difficult to pursue holiness. So the poor in spirit, the sorrowful, the meek. Very rarely do the meek take the center stage of history. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 5 that the meek or the gentle will inherit the earth. That seems completely opposite uh, of how we think. We think the conqueror, the loud voice, the big head, the one who's up front is going to be the one who wins in the end. But Jesus says it's the gentle, the meek. Power and performance and authoritarianism drive the narrative of this world. And if we aren't careful, it can influence how we view holiness. Now far too often we can associate holiness only with the public faces of well-known preachers. And hopefully that is the case. That if a man is up in the pulpit that he is also holy. But we shouldn't assume that simply because someone can articulate the Word of God that they actually know the God of the Word. And so holiness requires a recognition of our own weakness. And what that means is you're going to be holy. This is an incredible thought because again, when we think of holiness, there is a part of it (laughs) that makes us tremble like Uzzah touching the ark and being struck dead. That was the holiness of God in action. But the holiness of God in action is also God coming to Elijah in a still, quiet voice. It's gentle. Holiness means that I'm going to grow more gentle in how I treat other people. Meek in how I handle them. So the meek, we're running out of time, so I'll go through these. The hungry. Holiness creates a hunger for the righteousness of God, as Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we grow in holiness, our appetite for God doesn't diminish but increases. The more you come to taste the goodness of God, the more of God you want. The more you come to see the otherness of God, the more you want to, even if it costs you, even if it draws uh, other friends away from you, even if other friends leave you and say, they're acting strange, they're acting weird. They're not who they used to be. Once you hunger for the Holy Spirit, you don't care. You know, Lord, I, I don't I don't want to dis I want these people, I love these people, I want them in my life, but if them leaving means me coming closer to you, means me knowing you more than amen. Let it be. 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful. The merciful. In the past, people have rejected the church at times because they say, well, the church has a holier-than-thou mentality. And while that phrasing might be abused and and, uh, misused in other places and, and in misunderstandings, the issue still remains that if people are coming to the church and they feel that it is first a place of judgment before it is a place of mercy, then they're not seeing the full picture of who God is. God is both merciful and righteous, merciful and just. And what that means is, if I'm going to be more like God, that's what holiness for us means, being other, like God's otherness, drawing into Him. Do you know how God is described in Ephesians 2 and verse 4? He is rich in mercy. God's got billions of it, of mercy. More than enough to spare. And do you remember what he tells Micah in Micah 6 and verse 8? He has shown you, O man, what the Lord requires of you. But to do good, to love mercy, and to walk rightly before your God. Do you love mercy? Do you love showing people mercy? Most of the time we don't. Most of the time we like people getting what's coming to them. That's what we like. Right? You've done me wrong, and if I hear through the grapevine that something just happened to go bad for you and you've hurt me in the past, I kind of sit back and kind of, well, it's about time. We love those moments where we feel like people get what they deserve. God says if you're going to grow in holiness, you're going to learn to love showing people mercy. God says, I love being able to give people the opportunity to be forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful thing about God? And the incredible the incomprehensibleness of His nature with His holiness. Next, the pure. The pure will see God. The pure are holy. This is what it means to be holy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? We talked about it earlier. See God. They will see the beatific vision. They will see the face of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. Sometimes those who pursue holiness find themselves in constant arguments with others about what it means to be holy. Constantly debate and condemn, seeking to define and discover the clearest path to God. And again, some of those debates are important. But if we're not careful, we can start assuming that holiness means that we are in a constant state of friction and agitation. Do you know who is constantly at peace within himself? God. And God calls us to peace. And he calls us to be peacemakers. That's not easy to do. Especially when our pride is put on display as it so often is for us, and myself included. But a heart that seeks to live holy in this world will seek peace. Not at the expense of truth but a peace that comes through truth, by truth, in truth. And then finally, the persecuted. Whenever you decide to take holiness seriously in your life, when you're like, I I really want this holiness that God's offering, I really want to be closer to God, and you really start pursuing that, 
you're going to find there will be people in your life, people maybe that you didn't even expect, who, who are going to push you away. And it's sometimes going to be slow. It's sometimes going to be incremental. But sometimes it'll be a little bit more swift. But there are going to be people who no longer feel comfortable being around you because your very presence is an indictment of their life. Do you remember whenever Jesus came into the region of Gennesaret, cast out the demon into the swine? You you would think that the whole town who hears about it, they've known this demonic possessed man. They put chains around him. They couldn't contain him. He was a nuisance. You would think that they would come out and say, this is wonderful. This is great. This is awesome. Do you know what they say to Jesus? Leave. You are too terrifying. We thought the demon guy was scary. You're scarier. Do you remember... Do you remember when Jesus uh, calmed the storm? He calms the storm. The, the disciples, they're afraid because they think they're going to drown. And uh, after Jesus calms the storm, do you know what the Gospel writers tell us? They were afraid. Wait, I thought the waters are calm now. <laughs> they are. <laughs> they're just not afraid of what outside the boat. <laughs> they're now afraid of what's inside the boat. <laughs> and they realize something is happening here that we don't understand. And yet they can't leave Jesus' side. Why? Because He's holy. They hunger for Him. They long for Him. They know there's something there that they want, that mystery, that greatness, and yet they're trembling in His presence. This is holiness. A complete otherness. Well, as we end, one of the questions that we often get asked as preachers is this. What is God's will for my life? I'm sure that every preacher in here has got that question at some point. What does God want from me? Well, it often comes when someone's at a threshold of making an important decision. And I really, truly sympathize with the person who is trying to make that decision uh, in alignment with God's will. And there might be various answers to that question. But God has answered for us what His will is for our life. In verse, verse Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, this is the will of God. Couldn't be much clearer than that. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. And so young people, whenever you go to make a decision, whether it's to college, whether it's to make some other relational decision, to get married, whatever big important decision is, you're sitting there wondering and thinking, what does God want from me? If you start to go down a path that takes you farther from God, if you go down a path that makes you less holy, that takes you farther away from God's otherness, that is not God's will for your life. Because at the center of every decision, God wants you to be closer to Him and more like Him, living holy in this unholy world. Thank you guys for your time. I'm in the red for only a minute or so. So, all right, appreciate it.